I'm very, very delighted to welcome Mick Orsley, who over the course of around 40 um, or so film and TV credits has proven himself to be one of the best editors at work today. He's worked with My Beautiful Laundrette, The Grifters, Interview with the Vampire, as well as Twelve Monkeys, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, and most recently on Everest. Um, he's worked, from, from my perspective, with two of the finest British directors, Terence Davies and Bill Douglas early in his career, and we'll talk about those two in a moment. Um, he's been nominated for a BAFTA for his work on Dangerous Liaisons, and he won a BAFTA for his work on The Snapper. That film was the tenth of fifteen and counting collaborations with Stephen Frears. Basically, my job is about reacting and having an opinion about what I'm given to make, make a movie. And so you have to work out um, a process where you're entrusted with this material, mainly because you know it's expensive to go back on you. I mean, we didn't get rid of editors easily, more easily than DOPs. So you're given this material, but you have to work out how to operate your choices and reactions to the material you're given in a, an economical way, you know, because it's time and money making films. So narrative is what drives the choice, all the choices that we have to make from the early stages of rushes. And so, yeah, narrative is an evaluation of narrative in the pieces that we're given is basically how we make a living. You've got, you're given things, you have to assimilate what their narrative value is and put it on the screen for inspection and scrutiny from the people that employ you. So, um, for me, narrative is the key to well, having an opinion. You may, you may be wrong about what you're given, uh, but you've got to put something up there because you've got to carve it out of all this material. So, yeah, narrative, for me, is the basis of the film editing job, 100%. The other element that struck me um, is musicality, and it's interesting that the number of editors I've talked to <laughs> who started out in sound editing, uh, which is yeah. something you did. Yeah, actually, um, there was another stage to do with that, which was a failed career in, in, in the music business before <laughs> before being a sound editor. Um, Part of a band, or? Uh, I was, uh, yeah, I, I used to write songs in the, in the, in the heady days of, of the early 70s, and um, was, people would give, give money to rather untalented people like myself to go away and make albums, which is what we did. And then I realised actually that this wasn't going to last. You know, the seventies were going to it wasn't going to be such a sort of lucrative um, option as a career. So uh, I'd always been interested in films, and I actually went to film school. The sound side was very unglamorous. Everybody wanted to be DOPs or producers. They didn't want to be on the sound side. So there was a there was an opening there, and I loved sound and still do. And it was an opening. So desperate for a job, that's how I started and I would record sounds and go out and shoot and record and then cut them and that's how I ended up in the cutting room. I guess, and this is perhaps much, much more abstract than the art of storytelling, but it's, in a way, editing is, it, it's about understanding time and keeping time and understanding the rhythms of a yeah, specific scene. I, I, this sounds a bit sort of pretentious, I know, but in a way, the editor's job for a, for a feature film, or, or perhaps even a film that's only two minutes long, is to conduct the audience through it, like a conductor conducts an orchestra, and how you put light and shade and rhythmical storytelling rhythms up on the screen, 
sounds have rhythms, um, pictures have rhythms, and you've got to bring those all together. So I always think you're conducting the audience's emotions if you can tune into what they, who you hope they will be with what you show and the, the, and the way in which you show it. And so there's a musicality in that orchestration and that steering the audience through an, an emotional journey, hopefully, if it works well. Sometimes it doesn't, but, you know, fingers crossed every time that it will. Another editor, Herbert Schneid, um, who is probably most famous for working on the films of uh, Jean-Pierre oh, Jeunet. The and all things yes, like that. Yeah. Yeah. He spoke about, the, he said the, the, the unspoken element of editing is having the skill to know when not to cut. Yeah, that's so true. Um, the what's happened in I'm, I'm lucky enough to have lived through, you know, the film era, which gave me disciplines of of working methods to do with film editing, which I have kept through the digital age, and certainly when. The last film that I did, which was on film, which was 12 Monkeys, was exactly 20 years ago, so I think 95 we finished that. And that was the last film that I cut, literally, you know, film and a splicer. The, the disciplines meant that you had to plan sequences very, very carefully because the time it took you to literally make the cuts, select those pieces and join them up and hang up all the bits that you hadn't used was laborious. And when non-linear digital film editing came with the advent of the Lightworks machine, which was the, the, the system we used, and then what's now the standard Avid, it became very easy to cut. You could, you know, you'd press a button and two bits would join up. So you could be much looser, and therefore now it's it's much an, it's an easier process to do. And your instinct is always to try and interfere. I think probably what Hervey was talking about was it's much harder to then have an understanding of what you're doing where that you aren't making those cuts and is there tension or a narrative value as I would call it in not cutting or in holding back or doing different sorts of rhythms. You can look at things which have been very chopped up, very busy, very exciting to the eye and they cannot move you at all. It can be retinally very interesting um, but there can be things which are slow or held, you know, thinking of Terence's films I haven't seen the new one, but I imagine they probably, you know, have those sorts of tensions in them, and they can be profoundly moving. And of course, it's the editor's job to orchestrate you through those values and communicate them, and and hopefully communicate the the heartbeat of the film. You mentioned Terence. Uh, Terence, um, it's him, Bill Douglas, that perhaps we could get onto. Um, you saw a couple of clips. The man sucking the other guy's finger. Um, is from Terence Davies' second film of his early trilogy, Donna and Child. Um, and then we see a clip of a boy looking in a mirror, um, which is from the third part of Bill Douglas's trilogy, My Way Home. What's amazing about those films, and they seem to stand so much apart from cinema today, is yeah. just the length of the shots, the willingness not to test an audience's patience, but a belief in the audience would become involved. I haven't seen those films recently, and to see if now because we've we're what's glibly called a sort of MTV culture where we're used to information visually coming at us at us at a huge rate um, how those films survive to, to an audience now um, and of course Bill being um, if you like in advance of Terence's work and Terence was a huge um, a devotee of Bill's work and storytelling through imagery rather than through dialogue i.e cinematically through the poetry of cinema. Bill would, you know, allow shots to sit 
because he understood their their emotional value. They were very hard to cut too because still things are very difficult rhythmically because there's nothing to distract you. People say, oh, isn't it? It must be hard to cut sort of car chases and things like that. Actually, relatively, nothing is simple, but relatively, from an editorial point of view, things that fly around the screen are much more forgiving than, say, a man looking in a mirror with a, a very strong emotional story that leads up to that point so that you read that in a particular way. It's, it's about building up information which inflects the image you see. So from an editorial point of view, you're trying to assimilate what the audience is thinking or feeling at that point with a relatively still image, which is can be quite hard. And they're both remarkably good at framing, which then yes. jumps forward to a director like Terry Gilliam, who creates almost tableaus with his stuff. Yes, yes, and, and Terry, Terry uh, Gilliam, of course, um, nobody can see the world quite the way he does and where he puts his camera is so unique. His eye for what the, the storytelling, again the narrative value as I would call it, of a shot is supreme. And his playfulness with the camera, these wide lenses and so on, but they, they are all harnessed to storytelling. Bill Douglas used to say if you've got a beautiful shot and it doesn't mean anything, just jump on it and get rid of it because it's only going to cause you problems because it's only going to be a pretty shot. It has to have a narrative function. And Terry is very good at giving you a shot which is astounding but also has a pure narrative function and therefore it will stay in the film and do its job as a brick in the editorial wall, let's say, that builds up the, the building you're trying to make. Is that one of the places for you? I, I know you didn't work on Long Day Closes, which is Terence Davies' film from 1992. I find it hilarious that there was this incredible um, fuss about the fact that you have a two-minute shot in the film that's of carpet um, and the lights change. I remember that. And you actually move through four seasons of a year yeah. over two minutes just by the way that the light moves across this carpet and you hear different sounds. And people were genuinely outraged. I'm just curious about being in the presence of people who have a vision and how it is for you as an editor to work, to work with that. It's a sort of fascinating thing and um, I would say that in my job where you're, you have this fantastic sort of close relationship you know, with the, the centre of the filmmaking process, let's say. In the case of Terence or Bill Douglas, you're dealing with an auteur. It's not, I hate that phrase, but in this case I think it's appropriate. Let's put it more down at street level, you know, a writer-director, they're responsible for what's there. So as an editor, which also, is, as perhaps all of you here would agree, and I hope so, that it's also a writing process. Because it may say, you know, um, little Jamie stands in front of the mirror and the suit is far too large. Okay, that's all that Bill shot, but when you understand the story, the meaning of that is a little boy who came from a coma who's trying to aspire to another world which he can't belong to. That's what's going on in Bill's head and the way in which that is edited will reveal that subtext correctly or not according to the way it's placed in the story and the time we, we put it on the screen if you're, if you're doing the job well. So if you're collaborating with a director-writer of that, of that sort as an editor and, a, if you like, a writer of those images in this new incarnation, it can be a joyful experience or it can be seen as a threat. That isn't what I meant. Now, in the case of both Bill and Terence, it sounds incredible, but the sort of level of conversations we would have in the room were not really about these subtexts. It was more 
talking about how to decorate a room. Oh, do you think the red, or, you know, oh, well, it doesn't look quite right with the carpet. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's at another level. And yet, and I used to go home in the evening saying, why didn't we sit and talk this out? But it felt like you were talking about somebody's inner soul and it wasn't appropriate because you couldn't really challenge their taste. If they said, I want a green carpet, and you go and say, well, I, I hate green, you know, that's not going to work. You're there to make that green work for them because it's their choice. In fact, when it works, it was a sort of silent understanding about this is now right. And certainly with those collaborations, it was very much, I think this is okay because we feel comfortable moving this film forward and there's a sympathy for what I'm putting up there and the rhythms that is, is, is getting their approval. Neither of those people could say what was wrong with the sequence that you put together, but they'd just say it's not right or I think we've got a problem here, it's not reading correctly. So you would have to go home and figure out what was going on in their heads. And I say that with great admiration for them both, because I don't think you can't, there's a certain point of creative work, it is very hard to talk about it in a perfunctory way. But there was an empathy of what the goal was going to be. So what joined us together successfully in both these cases, and I had very good relationships with both of them, was I think they feel comfortable that I'm pushing this where they want it to go, and they feel safe with me, and they're going to let me muck about and make mistakes, and we're in it together. If you didn't have that joined-at-the-hip sort of empathy for what they were doing, you'd soon know, and you'd be out that, you know, you wouldn't last a week in a cutter and putting a film together like that. I was very lucky that I had great empathy for these two poets of cinema, and in a way it grounded me in everything that came afterwards, because the training I had with that sort of poetic cinema was real nuts and bolts image cinema, you know, you can't, you have to be very analytical about the image and the sound and how they work. I mean, Terence's, look, the one I did, the wonderful scene of the tattooing over the stations, the cross. I mean, that's written, that if you would read the script, that's what it says, and all I did was put it together as he had written it. And uh, people say, oh, that's fantastic, but the montage said, I don't know, I shouldn't get any credit for it, it was written on the page, that was it, you know, that's what Terence did. So, you have to have that empathy, and, and, and if you're lucky, it works, and certainly for the, the time I spent with Bill, and both of those people taught me pretty much everything that allowed me to make a living until today. Let's move on to a director um, who has sustained that living over the course <laughs> of about 30 years, Stephen Frears. Um, he, he is a fascinating director. On our way up here, we were talking about him, and I said it's really annoying that too many people regard him perhaps not as a great cinematic director. When you look at his body of work, and it is quite remarkable. But what I find fascinating with him is this sort of juncture of psychology, emotion, and plot yeah. that he manages to bring together. You started out, first of all, on a TV film, Walter. Then you moved on to a hit. What was the, the landscape like of at that time? Film at that time? Well, it was interesting, um, and I think, um, just to, uh, and this is a natural segue, I think Stephen very kindly offered me the job of Walter because of my association with Bill uh, and the BFI, and that I'd hung around there with, with uh, Kevin Brown and people I was lucky to fall in with, um, uh, people of that stature. And um, I, I think it was because he knew the trilogy that he, he offered me the job on Walter, which was something completely different. It was a film for Central TV, as I recollect. And, uh, it, it was two TV films of 70 minutes long and quite interestingly um, 
by default, we, we ended up having a working method together, which was that we shot the film and I was cutting it while, while I was shooting. And Stephen had to go away and make another film called The Year of the Cat, Judy Dench, yeah, about Vietnam. So unlike most productions, we actually assembled the film during the shoot. I cut the film while he was shooting. And then we put it to bed for six or nine months. And we, we went out of production while he went off and made this other film. And we agreed to meet six months later and look at what we'd done. That's what we did. And when we came back, this is an experience I've never repeated, that I had this detachment of the film, because normally you're being pushed to get to the end very quickly. Coming back and seeing the work we'd done, and it somehow was in very good shape. They'd all done a very good job. I mean, I, I was hanging on by my shirt, their shirt tails, you know. But well, then we looked at this film six months later, and within three or four weeks, it was kind of done. So when we moved on to The Hit, which was a film which was being very different for the cinema, for Jeremy Thomas and uh, you know, all the rest of it, very much a cinematic film being shot in Spain. It, there wasn't enough money for me to go near where they were shooting, so I had to be in London putting the film together every day when they were shooting on what was basically a road movie in, in Spain. And so we started just making the film down the telephone while he was shooting, cutting and I would go to the lab at five o'clock in the morning and see the mute rushes and then phone before they went shooting and talk it through. And he would just let me get on with it. And that's basically how we worked ever after, was that uh, he was kind enough to trust me to put the film together. And, you know, he gave me a lot of room just to do my thing and then would nudge you back on the rails if you felt you'd sort of gone off. So that's how we started working. But it was a very cinematic film, that, I, mean, oh, I think. and. Uh, it was great fun and um, it was great to do. And Walt was 82, then the hit was 84, and we're <coughs> going to jump to 1985, My Beautiful Laundrette. This, this really was a, a breakthrough for British film. It was such, and it was meant to have been television. Yeah, I mean, just, just what was odd was that going back to Walter and then the hit, you know, one was definitely for the telly, the, the hit was definitely a cinema, cinema experience. And Laundrette was, and I made a card especially to say this film is made for television. And actually by the time we took it to Edinburgh Festival, it was shown and suddenly sort of people reacted in a way which none of us quite expected. It was then clear that it was going to go to the cinema and as I was telling Ian, the cam cameraman Oliver Stapleton and I both had a cardiac arrest because a lot of the decisions that we'd made were all based on how it was going to be um, for the for a tiny screen, you know. Um, Oliver shot it with very big splashy colours that were very dominant in the back, if you look. And uh, I had cut it in a particular way, thinking, well, you know, it's got to, it's, it's got to go fast, and you know, you haven't got long to absorb the image. I was telling Ian earlier that then I went away on on another film was in Australia, and was a phone call came saying it was a very good use of big close-ups in, in My Beautiful Laundry, and I thought, there weren't any, I don't remember a single one. And I realised it was the aspect ratio had been changed for the blow-up to 35mm, which meant that, you know, Dan's head was being cut. So I thought, well, if everybody loves it, I guess I'm going to say, yeah, we did some really good close-ups. But, uh, you know, I said, Oliver, are you, are you happy with this? You know, and he said, I think we'll get away with it. And actually, it was that point that the film suddenly became something else, and this is absolutely true, I can't believe it now, but I had an assistant editor, I'm not going to say who it was, who was on to do that job, 
And the wonderful thing about working title was their first film was that they had a party the Saturday before the Monday shooting, so that we could all meet each other, cast a group. They don't usually do that, I tell you. Anyway, they got everybody together. And um, my, second, uh, my second assistant editor came along, and it was all very jolly, it was a nice feeling, and it was very much multicultural. It was, a, you know, it was crude in a, in a lovely way. And on the Sunday night, we were about to start shooting on Monday, a phone call came, and it was this assistant editor saying, Mick, I'm really sorry, I, I'm afraid I'm not going to do the film with you. I go, well, okay, why? He said, I don't think it's going to be good for my career. <laughs> and he pulled out. He said, I don't, I don't think I want to do a film about two gay guys in South London. I said, okay, okay, fine. And so I found somebody else. And, uh, uh, and it's the only film that we have had tiny royalties from ever since it was made, so he missed out on all, they gave to everybody a little tiny royalty. So and, and was that the moment Nigel Farage decided not to be made? But, you know, and then actually, it's what a film which people still ask me about to this day, you know, and uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a wonderfully quirky film, yeah. It's interesting watching it now because I think we, we have very few films these days that are so politically forthright. Um, and it, it just feels like a very, very angry film. Yeah, I think, I think it is. I think and it is. what's interesting about this is that you are drawing the elements of the narrative together. Like, you know the two guys walking along talking about business are sooner or later going to get yeah, of course, that of point. Course. You know, you've got to make it move, you've got to make it sort of visceral, but you don't want it to be sort of Hollywood violence that's glamorised in any way. It's got to be mucky. And it's got to be real. It's got to be what it would be in South London. And um, I suspect that now we've probably been under a certain amount of pressure to goose it up a bit. <laughs> Every punch but, hitting well, up. yeah, you know what it's like with these yeah. noises they put in there. You know? I, I remember very much when is it Richard comes back and, and hits him in the back with a. You know, now you don't. You, we deliberately didn't put a big thwack in there because yeah. we wanted it to be ugly and. Then you get this fantastic juxtaposition with the two men who, I mean, in structural terms, it's great. It's, it's, it brings it to a peak. And so with this, again, <coughs> Stephen pretty much left you. To yeah, he gave show. me a lot of freedom. It was done very quickly. I think we'd shot in five weeks. We had a version of it about after six, I think, or maybe less, a few days. Uh, I managed. In those days, we didn't used to get huge amounts of material. Uh, perhaps on that film I would have been getting half an hour a day or something like that compared to the six or seven hours that we get from digital cameras now. So it was possible to cut the film as, as it was being shot, keep up with it, and but it was done very quickly. I think the whole thing was done in about 10 or 15 weeks. Dubbed in five days. I remember we had one very quick, very quick rush at the dub. There was a wonderful screening where <laughs> I had some guests and we'd finished it. I felt very proud of the film. And I leaned over in my role as the editor in a screening room about this side and asked um, the projections to start running, and the screen went brown. <laughs> I thought, what's gone wrong? So I went round the back and realised the projectionist had laced up the, the mag track and put it in the picture head, and that the picture was in the, all over the sound head. So that that didn't go down too well. <laughs> I think he had. I think he'd been at the sherry actually. I think so. I quickly had to get it down. Luckily, it wasn't damaged. Wait. Going to jump uh, forward three years now um, to 1988, but in the intervening years, 
you worked on another two films with Stephen Frears. First of all, Prick Up Your Ears in 87, but also in 87, Sammy and Rosie Get Laid. But we're moving to a very, very different film now, and this is Dangerous Liaisons. I must just tell you one quick thing about the name of the film, because when we were working on it, it was the French title, although it was, it was, it was paid, you know, ultimately it was owned by Warner Brothers. Um, and somebody, so we called it Les Liaisons Dangereuses until one day somebody said, who is this guy, Les? <laughs> I kid you not, honestly, I won't say who it was because I'll never work for Warner Brothers again. Uh, and then, and actually, in the, in the sort of, in the sort of zeitgeist, anglicising it before the film came out, it sounded very odd. And, and, and somebody wrote to us and said, we're thinking of calling it by the English title, Dangerous Liaison, you know, because it had to for America, Dangerous Liaison. And it sounded really odd, because we'd only ever known it as, as... And Christopher Hampton said, no, don't worry, it'll be fine. And he was absolutely right. So then it became Dangerous Liaisons. But that, that sequence that was the title sequence was uh, a beautifully shot by the one of Philippe Rousselot. And it, he, we, we just thought of it as two people dressing for war. Because yeah. seduction and war being the same, and as if you know the film, then that's appropriate. And Glenn's face in the mirror balances with the final shot where she's completely falling apart and takes the, the makeup off and breaks down. You know, so it it, it was all absolutely effortlessly thought through and put together. The only problem I had with that sequence, just to interrupt for a second, was. I was horrified when they said, look, we're going we, to have to put titles over it. And I thought, oh my God, all these beautiful shots and the storytelling is always different when, you're, when you've got text over it. So I reluctantly agreed and said, well, I'll map it out. But I only had those, there were no more shots than the ones you see. And it worked out that um, there was one, one of the, t I couldn't accommodate one of the producers. Uh, because the original text was that they were on the screen at the same time, and it all worked out perfectly. I couldn't believe my luck. It's, it all worked out great. And then I got a phone call saying, we've got to separate them. And I said, well, I haven't got another shot. You know, I have, it's all going to go wrong. I'm gonna, they need to go in the places they go, because that's our job. Anyway, I persuaded them to go on the screen one after the other, and I got away with it. But the one thing was, I didn't want to put a, a title over the wonderful shot. There is one close-up, but there was the shot where John, we called it the Mickey Mouse shot, where he puts that sort of funny mask on and thought, no, I'm not, not having a... I don't want titles over the first Mickey Mouse shot. <laughs> you know, Although the, very close to it is Philip Brousselow, the cinematographer, yeah, exactly. so yeah. he didn't mind. No, no, he was great. But there were no other shots. Yeah. That was the, everything they gave me, and it all worked perfectly. It was beautifully designed, again, by Philip and, and Stephen. Yeah, so it was, it's interesting you say the a story about Les Liaison Dodgers. Yeah turning into Dangerous Liaisons. Yeah. It's a great story that Aunt Bennett tells about um, the Americans approaching him about the uh, title for the film version of his play, The Madness of King George III. And they said, can we take the three out because we're worried people won't have <laughs> seen true. the first two it's films. Yeah. <laughs> it's true, uh, I heard that from another source. Yeah. 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 You do get some very funny things said to you in the process of cutting a film like that, you know. But I have to say with Liaison, it, it, it was, a joy from the minute we started. That film w worked, and Christopher Hampton, bless him, it's the only film I've ever worked on where, if I was to show you the script I was given the day we started shooting, part, apart from one alteration, or two actually, I'll tell you what they are, you could read Chris's script and just turn over the pages and it's that's what's up there. Now that's very rare. Mm -hmm. 
and Christopher had done such a beautiful job. He says, oh, it's because there was a book, and then I did the play, and then I said, well, and you, and you did the T-shirt as well, didn't you? Um, and he, he was very modest about it, the fact that it, by the time we got to make it, it worked so well. And the only change editorially that we made was to reduce uh, Malkovich's um, what really is the rape of Cecile. You know, there was more of that, and we, we, we none of us felt comfortable about putting the audience through something you could imply. So we chiseled that down. There was more of it, and it was really tough stuff. So we, we halved that, and we moved a scene near the, to the deaths at the end. There was a sort of funny flashback, and we just made them chronological. But that was it. So Chris's script was absolutely heaven. Uh, coming back to the, the cross-cutting, something that... Yeah, crude cross-cutting, as it was called. <laughs> is, what I found fascinating in this case is the, is the collapsing of space. You, we have, in, if you watch the whole of The Beautiful Laundrette, you actually know where everyone is. Yeah. You understand their location. But what's amazing about this sequence yeah, is that that you have two people who are in very separate buildings. Yeah. But the way that sequence is edited to set up this battle, you've completely collapsed the space between them. Yes. And then you have the fourth wall broken, first with him looking at camera, and yes. then her looking dead. Yes. It's funny because it, it's, it's, it's odd why that works so well. Um, and it's because, you know, if you see Glenn in the mirror at the beginning, which had all this, you know, ellipse to do how it was going to end. Although actually, no, hold on, there is, I've, I've lied. There was, Christopher had, the play also had her being at the guillotine at the end. I'm sorry, it didn't end with her in the mirror. There was a guillotine, um, which we we chose to remove. So that that wasn't the answer. So for yeah. those who haven't seen the yeah. film, you now know it doesn't end well. Yeah, it doesn't end well. But actually, in the play and in and we shot and it looked rather dodgy. You know, there was a balsa with guillotine and Glenn with her head through it, and we all said, no, no that's not good. That's just she's we've done it. She's she's in a mess anyway. So, but um, it it it's sort of. Um, the, the, the mirror works because you see her looking at herself and then when she and Abbott address the camera, for some reason it, the, the convention, convention just sort of works. Um, the interesting thing about that film was about a week into shooting, um, it wasn't so common in those days when this was 88, was it? I can't remember. 88, yeah. Um, the, the, the idea of the very big close-up, I mean, not just, uh, uh, you know, down to here, but a sort of real whopper, um, wasn't so common um, at that time, or I don't remember seeing so many. And about a week in, Stephen phoned me and said, I'm feeling I've got to get the camera right up their noses, you know, and are you okay with that? And I said, yeah, of course, uh, but, you know, do you think we ought to have cover where we could get out of that editorially later. And he said, I think we should commit to it because the film is about lying and the only way you can expose the lying is to be that close. And we worked out sort of where, you know, there was that point. And you can see it in, even in the, the opening sequence, so that wonderful shot where he sort of smirks, you know, you think, oh God, what's, what's he up to? And it, it wouldn't, if you're that little bit looser, it wouldn't communicate that complexity of and they were actors that could deliver it, let's face it, that complexity of things. And so the camera had to be, the shot has to be pretty tight. And so Stephen made a choice, said, do you mind, I'm not going to give you the choice. Uh, we're going to commit to it so that nobody else can make us back out of that choice later. I said, I'm with you all the way. And so the shots got closer. Now the costume department, dear Jim, they freaked out because, in effect, we were making a very claustrophobic film. 
And at the first cut, I remember people saying, you've got to put wide shots in, uh, in order to balance this, this proximity, this claustrophobia that we're getting with the psychological stuff, and, and use more of the rooms. There was a sort of slight panic about the film in that way, and Stephen, in his wisdom, said to me, you know what, it's just that we haven't gone far enough. He said, take out as many of the wide shots that are there at the moment that you've got, until it's ridiculous, and then if we pull it off, they won't miss them. In other words, we haven't gone far enough. Do the opposite of what the audience is telling us. At that point, the film started to work, and nobody ever mentioned it again. So it was quite, that was a nerve-wracking side, but it was Stephen guided me through that, and he made the choice not to give anybody, me as well, the option of, of, of doing it differently. The other interesting element with it, and again, this opening sets us up for that, of breaking down the fourth wall of having yeah. John Markovich engage with the camera is that this came out around the time of Merchant Ivory at the height of their powers. Of oh, there was the other, was the Foreman film we were in competition yeah. with, yeah. Well, uh, Vamo, 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 yeah. Um, which are very traditional costume dramas, period heritage films that we're used to. Yeah. It's a very, very contemporary period film. Uh, and it it's, it's almost because of those close-ups, because you're cutting away garden shot after garden shot, landscape, things like that. It, yeah, and he, John would throw in these things. I don't know if you remember the, some of the fencing and so on. There were a whole lot of baseball moves in there, apparently, that John sort of adapted into the sword fight. Yeah, he said, what's he doing? Oh, he said, that's, a, that's something they do in baseball. <laughs> yeah, you know? right. And then him under, the, you know, him under the duvet at the beginning, I remember, that was all sort of John sort of larking about, and it's terrific, you know. We, we tried to pour in as much of those eccentric things as we possibly could. We're going to jump forward again a few years with the, the last excerpt from a Stephen Frears film. Um, this is 1990, two years later. and This is an incredibly different adaptation of Jim Thompson's The Grifters. I know that Stephen is a huge cinephile. And yes, yes, particularly that, that sort of era. I was wondering, like, gum did, did, did he have kind of references that he I think he did, yeah. About? I mean, he, yeah, I mean, he's absorbed all that, that culture and he was very on it. Um, I mean, they're amazing performances, for, for me anyway. I mean, there was always... Angelica in that blonde wig was of course quite a lot of trouble at the beginning of shooting. Nobody was quite sure whether we'd get away with it, but, uh, you know. So then you've got the balance, uh, Annette Benning also starts yes. the film, and she's yes. almost kind of a younger version. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, one of the reasons I love this sequence is, is the pace of the film was not in the cutting, but in the speed of the dialogue and how it's spoken. Yeah. yeah. And, and what you have here is, is very minimal editing, but it is... A very wise choice at the points that you do cut. Well, well, looking at it again, I was reminded that actually, you know, Angelica, that speech across the room, she could have walked there and back four times for the amount that we spun it out. But in the seduction of the sun, you know, which is, you, you need time to absorb what that is and how complex it is in, in your head. And um, I think we did everything just to keep stretching it, as it were. And can you talk a bit about music itself within the film we we have that flute coming in first of all yeah but also george fenton and bach in, in dangerous liaisons and jumping forward a few years we've got contemporary music with high fidelity yeah uh, at what point in time do you start using or working with the music it varies i mean i'm sort of rather old school in in that respect um with dangerous liaisons um george it was very early on that he said i'm going to do I will write thriller, if you like, for the thriller aspect of that movie. I will write that, and I will adapt the bark for the period stuff. 
and we've we started throwing the bark in quite early on. The difficult thing from an editorial point of view is that music of any sort uh, it can so profoundly affect your perception of the pictures that it kind of makes you feel comfortable with what you've done. I prefer to work with as little music as possible for as long as possible because I find it makes me you know, have a tougher view of what we've done. That uh, Music sort of makes you feel, oh, it's all okay, you know, editorial is fine, it's smoothed out or whatever. Whereas if you look at the, the bones of the film and it plays and you're not, uh, you're not sort of propping it up with music, it only gets better once you've resolved the dramatic rhythms and the constructional rhythms. So, again, I think with the Grifters, the wonderful Elmer Bernstein, it was interesting to me that nowadays you would, you would score that, you would score what we did, which is the anticipation of what Lily is going to do to the sun in some way, but you'd also score the, 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 the bash and all the rest of it. And of course, what's great about this is the music disappears, and that's why it's so horrifying. And the ambiguity of whether she really meant how hard she meant to hit him, and it, it all allows that to come forward, whereas music would sort of cheapen it in some way. And it was interesting that Elmer chose to take it all out. And in fact, I don't think we bring the music back until she drives off. She basically goes to hell at that point and drives off into the night with the money, having lost her son. I mean, it is thrilling to see something you've cut, then scored, and when they suddenly then become one thing and you can't imagine them being separated is, is very, a very exciting moment. It's a very powerful animal when you put music on there. It's very, it, it can push you off in the wrong direction when it doesn't work and it, it can be quite scary. So six years after this, mm. you worked again with Stephen on the van and that was the first time that you started editing digitally. How has that affected you over the years? <laughs> well, I remember that first day because I, 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 I didn't have those skills. In fact, I remember seeing a digital cutting room thinking, God, I've got to look at a television all day long. That's not good. Because I was used to working on a movie earlier or a steam back. You know. So you actually had the film in your hands, not, not through something else. You couldn't see people's eyes, you know, I remember because it was all pixels. And now it's much better, of course. But I do remember that first day that I had an assistant help me and I said, what do I do? And he said, well, you press that button and that shot will go there and this is how you mark it and so on. And we started to work and I skipped home because I suddenly realized how quickly you could think and select material. You could have ideas in your head and try them and then delete them. And all the things which we all now take for granted was all brand new. I still use the disciplines that I learned cutting film to apply to the digital process. It, it taught me to try and construct the, 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 the film in my head before I actually came to do it. You know, I, I needed to write the sentences in my mind filmically from what I'd seen. And if I could remember it by the time I got to work, I knew it was probably okay. You know, I'll do that, I'll do that, I'll do that. Okay, now I'm gonna make it. Can I see that? I think it's wonderful. I would never go back, you know, I would never go back. Um, I, you know, it's like, would you go back to a pen? Would you go back to handwriting? Well, we do a certain amount, don't we? But you're not going to write a long essay, not on a, on a laptop, are you? No. So I wouldn't go back to chopping up film. Are there any questions? In terms of workflow, to what extent do you have a specific uh, approach to how you run an edit? Do you need to be adaptable to each director? And, and their expectations of, do you know what I mean? The methodology 
I've had until actually this this sort of last year, I've you know I fell in with these directors I've been lucky enough to work with, and I knew them sort of uh, they they became friends, and so there was a, a great deal of trust involved in in the operations that I would do for them. In other words, you know I had the screenplay for um, for my beautiful laundrette long before we made the film. As, as soon as it came through Stephen's door, he, he sent it to me and said, "Read this," and we and I watched it develop. Um, and was able to participate in the conversations we had prior to shooting it. So, in other words, I've done quite a lot of work by the time we start, and the directors that I've been lucky enough to work with would always give me the freedom to do a draft of the movie while they were shooting. It's sort of kind of an industrial uh, requirement that we produce an editor's cut soon after the end of shooting, you know, because we're running in parallel. You know, it's a question of moving it along together, just sitting there discussing, seeing how we can improve. Some films landed really easily to begin with and we didn't do a great deal to them after that. Others, we really had to do a lot of work to pull them through. What's happened in the digital um, age, you know, where we are now, is that the sheer volume of film produced in the daily shooting with multiple cameras and digital cameras and actors behave very differently now because they know in their heads they can muck about more because it's relatively cheap. In these days, it was film negative, so cost. You could see the old pounds, shillings, and pence going through the camera. <laughs> so they behave differently. In fact, I've spoken to uh, at long, the film Everest. You know, I was talking Jake Gyllenhaal, and I had a long conversation with him, saying, "Do you enjoy this process now?" He said, yeah, "I love it because yeah, I feel like I muck about more." And I was going, "Yeah, you do muck about." More. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, and somebody's got to sort out the mess. And I'll be honest, I resent it. They're there to do their jobs, simple actions, well, and the montage will bring it all to life. They've got to trust us to do that. You know, a day shooting costs a lot of money, you can be very short of time and all the rest of it, and that one shot, which I might not get because they've done 48 takes with different dialogue, is going to cost me down the end when we really understand what needs to be up there. And that one size different, that one look, that one thing, a director needs to, um, you know, absolutely have control of that and know when they've got what they want and then they can afford to muck about for an hour or something and maybe you get something wonderful, maybe you don't. When do you decide that you've finished editing the film? It's ready. <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> um, it's really difficult. Usually it is just that time dictates that you've, you have to finish. You can cut off, you know, I could still be cutting Dangerous Jesus probably all these years later. Um, I sort of in my heart know when the film has got to a point where I think it's correct editorial from my point of view and all the other editorial thing. And I have had occasions where I've worried that we've had a little bit too much time and that the conversations that are now in the air, the sort of insecurities we all have, start to make the film go down. I usually know when it's done and I try and hang on to that period, that thing in my head. To, and if, if, if a director says I want to change it, that's their prerogative. I'm a, I'm a cog in a wheel, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm down the food chain. But I can still use my influence to say, can we just look at the film we had two weeks ago because I think this is better. I, I mean, I've been lucky to work with very, very experienced directors, but we all get anxious about the movies. Keeping your freshness to what you've got is hard. In the end, you know when it's finished when you screen the film and you feel it in the room and you think, yes, it's delivering. You don't listen to exactly what people say, but if you sit in the back and you feel that it's playing, if you hang on to that, that's very precious. 
And if you're lucky, it's, it's quantifiable enough that you can say, no, it was playing, don't muck about, it's done, you know, we're there. Yes. Um, I'm actually in um, art department, but I've um, been working with uh, directors recently who um, have been editors in the past, and, and seeing them on set, and that they really know what shots they do and don't want. Have you ever been tempted by directing? Yeah, yeah, tempted. Yeah, I've done a little bit of second unit, which was great fun. Um, for the film, I did Dirty Pretty Things. I, I did what's called, what I called um, clocks and telephones. You know all those shots of. <laughs> I did all those in people's hands. You know. Um, yeah, I, I have been tempted, but I, I do love cutting a lot, and I'm not sure that I've got quite the sort of uh, military robustness that you need to be a director. Um, uh, anyway, I, I, you know, if you really, I thoroughly enjoy being in the cutting room and you get to be with everybody. It's a very rewarding job, if not sometimes laborious and painstaking. But um, I've been tempted, but I haven't really got there. So I think you have to have an understanding of what that job is because I like to consider that the cutting room is, is home, you know, and that directors feel safe there, it's a shoulder to cry on, that you become mates, you work together, it's, you know, I need them and they need me, and um, it's like a relay race, you know, I run with it for a bit and then the baton gets handed back and I, I you know, hand it over and so on. So it's, it's teamwork in that sense, but I'm not sure I've got that robustness to do, do the directing job, if I'm honest. And yet you have the robustness to keep working with Terry Gilliam. <laughs> well, um, he's a, he's a, that's great. Could you talk about that the the relationship? Because it, yeah, there's so much written about Terry uh, mm. Terry Gilliam's productions are chaotic productions, and yet when you see the final work, they're beautifully measured. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I always get upset when they think you know Terry's given a reputation for being uh, you know not responsible with the budgets and all that. Not true in any of the films I've worked on, which is. Uh, three, I think, or three and a half, we did a little short, uh, three and a half. Um, he's very responsible, he cares desperately about the people he's working for. Uh, when I first worked on 12 Monkeys, um, people said, oh, you know, Terry recuts everything, you know, for the edit. I go, oh, really? Okay, or, or if he'd like to do that, that's, that's his privilege. And in fact, um, I found that he, he trusted me to put the film together and because he can do all the people's jobs, you know, because he draws, you know, he can do everything. He can shoot stuff, he can edit. I found that was an advantage because when I produced the work first up, he got a huge kick out of it because he knew what I'd done. He understood it at a level that other directors wouldn't have done. And so his knowledge of my part of the job was, you know, enormously, um, I found it helpful, you know, that I, I and so, you know, he, he's, he's just an inspiring person to work for. And I trust him to, you know, to direct me, to guide me when I need it. And it, I guess he lets me get on with it if he doesn't feel he has to intervene. So it, it's, you know, he's very responsible and uh, probably the most hardworking man I've ever worked with. The, um, the also, he loves it. I mean, yeah. it's, it's like, he's still like a kid, you know, it's like the pleasure of it, you know. Wonderful. Um, we're going to end with two clips from 12 Monkeys, and the reason I want to pick these two together is that in a way they, they cross over mm. what we've looked at already. The first is a slightly noirish interrogation process, oh, um, yeah. and then we go to a slightly more romantic 
um, way. It's, it's essentially a boy's memory That's right. that we see at the end. Could you talk about the, the discussions you have? Because they're like the rest of the film, it shifts in tone and pace throughout. And it's quite a remarkable film that you do have these connect, really kinetic moments. And then sort of these more languorous, beautiful, romantic scenes. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you picked the scene with the scientists because um, that was shot very early on, and it was uh, we were in, that bit was in Philadelphia, and um, we Terry and I would meet every night, you know, uh, after he'd been shooting because we were all in the same hotel and and we needed uh, we we needed a glass of something after a day on that night, <laughs> so we'd sit in the evening and talk about what he'd done, and, he, and that day he said, "I've shot." everything on that scene with it. It's, I have no idea what I've given you. I just shot everything. I have no idea how you put it together. But I've shot all the sizes, all the directions, and there was tons and tons of stuff. Uh, and he just said, just have fun with it. And actually, it did take me a long time to figure out what it needed to do in the film. And even when we were dubbing, months later, one day I looked at it and thought, the scene is still too long, there's a bit I could take out and it would still say the same thing. So, and we did. We were very, very late, we took another bit out. So that was something I found in the cutting room. The scenes, I think you can show up with the, the, with the, in the, airport, you know, the boy seeing himself. Yeah. Um, those, again, that was quite interesting because David and Janet Peoples, who wrote the screenplay, which actually I'd read two years before Terry was asked to direct it because I, I made a film with uh, David um, some years earlier, and he sent it to me. Said, and I thought I, I would die to make this film. I've got to make this film. As fate would have it, we ended up working with Terry on it. So the you remember so structurally through the film, you get these little glimpses of this event, which is the airport. And again, David and Jan had sort of scattered them through the film. And it was always a running joke that we'd one day have to editorially start to commit this stuff about where they would go. And it was the same thing, Mick, uh, running joke. Have you found out where to put the airport stuff? And they say, not really, no. And we did it, you know, bit by bit. It took a long time to figure out how much you, of that story you revealed. And in the end, uh, what helped me was, rhythmically, I thought, oh, this film is a bit like sort of water going down the bath, you know, they're, they're going down the plug hole. And if we supply these little bits of information that you slowly, as the film progresses, deliver more and more information that reveal the complexity of that story. And so the airport really rhythmically was little shards which in fact became longer and more complete. So rhythmically you'd, had, you'd been seeded in, in little shards of information and then eventually you get the whole thing. So a different rhythm, different rhythm. Can you join me in thanking Mick Audley? Lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you.